Heavenly Father, I thank you for the prayer that Brent shared with us this morning. Lord, we claim all of that. No matter what happened this week, whether good or bad, we can hold on to you. I thank you, Lord, for the story that Sandy shared, that we indeed are to follow you, and that following is going to change our lives like never before. And as Elisha asked for the Holy Spirit, so we ask for the Holy Spirit now. May the Spirit lead us into truth, settling our hearts into a deeper understanding of who you are. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. So I'm just going to take care of a few little things uh, before we dive into the passage today and give you some time. Meanwhile, while we're doing that, let me just, uh, as we're doing that, let me just remind you that you need a worship guide. And if you haven't got a worship guide, if you put your hands up, then uh, our deacons uh, up here at the front and over the side will make sure that you get a worship guide. Keep your hands up and make sure we'll do that. I'll remind you again at some point all the way to the front row. A um, little bit of, uh, little bit of uh, transfer stuff that I want to be able to share with you guys here. There should be a screen that comes up. Uh, and what you'll see there, I'm going to read to you. You've seen this in the bulletin. Uh, and we'd like to take a vote today, a little action for here, for us, for a community. Uh, we have uh, Tony Hunter and uh, Nerma Hunter-Santos. Uh, I, I, I didn't realize that until I saw this. It's really good. It's good. The other way around. Santos Hunter, that's the other way around. Great. One of them is going to be transferring in. Uh, I'm hoping that it's the Santos Hunter uh, or the Hunter Santos, but one of those are coming in. That's great. And we've got Shelby uh, Shotwell uh, from Rocky Mountain Conference are transferring into the church. Here, Catherine Brownlow is going to be going to Franktown, Seventh-day Adventist Church, Becky Klein to Campion, Seventh-day Adventist Church, Max and Phyllis Goodwin to Campion, Seventh-day Adventist Church, Sherry Isaac, she's moved to Michigan, she's going to uh, Stevensville Church in Michigan, Dina Kraft to Vista, Seventh-day Adventist Church in Longmont, and Eric Sigler to Campion, Seventh-day Adventist Church, and Gail Simmons to Nampa, uh, Nampa Seventh-day Adventist Church in Idaho. So what I need is a, is a motion, uh, which has been recommended, I need everybody to be in favor, hopefully, all in favor of the transfers taking place? Anybody opposed to the transfers taking place? Oh, very funny, I saw that. Tommy just did this whole thing here. I, I saw that, I saw that, I watched that. All right, good, all right, good. So all carried, great, we'll that is good to go. And I think, I hope Ellie is just waving for her mom, yes. She wasn't voting against. Good, Ellie, that's good, we're safe then. <laughs> all right. Um, we are coming to the end of the Prophets and Kings series, uh, as it is right now. And the next two weeks, there's going to be some major transitions. And then we're going to come back to the Prophets and Kings series because we've still got Second Kings to get through. And we're only entering into Second Kings today. But next week, we have a guest speaker coming here, Eric Shadel. He works for, uh, for Centura Health, and he helps with uh, Creation Health. And he's going to come here, share a great message on hope. And I think you're going to be blessed with that. And Brent is leading worship with his team next Sabbath, so encourage you to be here next Sabbath and enjoy that. Then when we come back after that, after we've been at the Seattle for the One Project, those of us who are away, uh, I'm going to share a, a new message with you before we dive back into Kings. Uh, the Tale that Wags a Dog is the title of what I'm going to share with you, and I want to kind of, as strongly as I can, and as nicely as I can, and as offensively as I can, articulate a vision for church. Because there are all sorts of crazy metrics thrown out there as to what is a successful church. There are all sorts of crazy ideas as to what people think church is. 
And there's also these incredible challenges that God lays to us about what church is. And so we're going to spend some time on that. I encourage you to be back for the next two weeks as we go with Eric Schadel on Creation Health and then the following week on The Tale That Wags the Dog as we look at what it is the church should be doing and how does this church affect the entire global church as well. But for today, uh, making sure you've got your worship guides. Anybody not getting one? Anybody still missing? Great, you'll need that. Worship guides, we are in which book? First Kings, good guess, good guess. All right, somebody said Second Kings, we're gonna ignore them. Second Kings is coming. It's coming, I know, so close. We actually are gonna get into Second Kings today. Don't feel bad, your voice was very loud and carried. Everybody heard you say the wrong answer. It's all right, so we're in First Kings, and we're in chapter 20, and then we're gonna to get to Second Kings, so it's okay, Janelle. Now that I mention names, so everybody knows that. All right, so let me do this, because I asked you last time, I wanna make sure you remember this. Uh, let me make sure that you know, the children of Israel are in exile, right? And they're in exile, and they're looking back at the whole history, and as they're looking at the history, they're saying, we looked at Moses, and we looked at the judges, and we looked at the kings, and we're trying to understand the question, did God what? Abandon us. Thank you, Kevin. Did God abandon us or did we abandon God? Everybody's like, I'm so glad Kevin said it. It was just an awkward moment right there. That's the question that we're asking. And they're hoping that when you hear the stories in Kings, it will transform you so that you will reevaluate your identity in God. You will say, This is who I am in God. That's what the story is about. So obviously, following Moses and Judges, you end up with King David, and we looked at King David, and then after King David, he had his son Solomon, and everybody used to think that Solomon was amazing and intelligent and smart and the greatest king that ever lived, until you looked at his story where he used all that wisdom, all that power, all that wealth to destroy the empire, including himself to a degree as well. And then his, the kingdom is split into north and south, and we talked a little bit about that, and you've got two lines, and the kings now is going through the two lines of the kings north and south. And so far, no mention of any real prophet. There are little splashes, but no real prophet. One appears, no name, men of God, and then it kind of disappears, and we still go back to the kings until out of nowhere arise Elijah the Tishbite. And that's all we know about him. He's Elijah the Tishbite. And this guy appears on the scene, does his incredible signs, uh, really raises somebody from the dead. Uh, he works with the widow. He actually goes to battle against all of Baal and all of the prophets on Mount Carmel, has an amazing experience. And then as we discovered last week, hits this deep state of depression because he's worried that Ahab and Jezebel are going to get him. And unfortunately, when he looks at Ahab, he's not threatened by Ahab so much, he's definitely threatened by Jezebel. Because Jezebel is one of those people who says when she's gonna get something done, she gets it done. Whereas Ahab, he's kinda like, yeah, yeah. And so he wasn't too worried about him. But when Jezebel said, I am Jezebel, you are Elijah, as bad as you are, you will be dead tomorrow, he runs to the hills. But the story doesn't talk just about the fact that he runs to the hills, the story talks about how God still has a purpose and mission for Elijah. And he says to him, with the strength of God, you need to go back, face your enemies. Go back down there and address the issues you need to do. And I will be with you in a different form, not in the fire and in the power and all that kind of stuff, that all the three signs coming together, but in a very different form. So we arrived then here in chapter 20. 
the end of the story now. We're coming to chapter 20 here. And it says here, Ben-Hadad, chapter 20, verse 1. By the way, um, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take the Bibles from the pews. Um, we, uh, we're going to order some more because we're missing some now, and so that's fantastic. So take a Bible from the pew, and, uh, and you're welcome to write in that Bible, which I encourage you to do. There's something about memorization when you write with your hand. I don't know, maybe it's just a generational thing, but for me, I can't remember anything if I type it. But when I write it with a hand and pen, I'm like, ah, oh, it just sits inside my brain. So take the Bible, take those pens. You're welcome to take the pens home. We'll restock them. Uh, we're on page 207, page 207, 1 Kings chapter 20. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. Who armed the Syrian armies? Solomon. He actually made that empire grow. So now they're turning against him. Poor Solomon, trying to be something else, didn't follow God in that way. Syria gathered all his army together. 32 kings were with him, horses and chariots, and went up and closed in all Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers in the city to Ahab, king of Israel. We don't like Ahab, really, do we? I mean, he's not been really good, so we don't really like him. Says to him, thus says Benadad, verse 3, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. It's good that he clarified the wife thing. Because, I mean, you know, Ahab could have said, yeah, you, you take her. <laughs> Enjoy that one. And he's like, no, 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 just your best wives. I don't want to have all the trouble in my life. I just want that one in particular. But uh, he says everything, your children, your best wives, your silver, your gold, take it all. And Ahab basically says, okay, uh, yeah, I guess so. Uh, I'll do that. And so then he goes... And he says to the king, I'm not too sure about this, but I think this is what I'm going to have to do. But the king says to him in verse 6, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about the same time. So he gives him 24 hours. Now, if, if Ahab was Jack Bauer, okay, in 24 hours, he could turn the whole world around. But he's not. He's not even close to being like Jack Bauer. He is just Ahab. And so in those 24 hours, he basically goes and has a meeting with the elders board. And he says to the elders, what should we do? And they say to him, do not listen, verse 8, do not listen, do not consent. We are not going to be accepting this. So Ahab's kind of worried about this. And he says, I don't know about this. This is kind of really terrible inside here. And Ben-Hadad in verse 10 says to him, hey, listen, I am going to destroy you guys. But then a prophet appears on the scene. And this prophet basically says to Ahab this, God is with you. He will deliver you. And Ahab says in verse 14, but how is he going to do this? And he says this, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Basically, what we would understand today as the special forces. That's who they are. When you read inside your Bible, it says the servants of the governors, those are the special forces. They're the ones who do all the missions, all the impossible tasks. And the prophet says to Ahab, trust me, the elders are with you. You're doing a good thing. Ahab, be a good man. And Ahab now is starting to, starting to turn. And you're thinking to yourself, I like this guy again. You know, forget what happened with Elijah. This is a good guy. Look at him. He's standing up against Syria that's attacking him. Everything's good. Verse 17 comes along. The servants of the governors of the district went out first. And, of course, they destroy them. They have a great battle. In fact, it says in verse 20 that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse and got away. Oh, that was the first battle. Everything's good. Everybody's happy. Everybody loves this guy and thinks to themselves, this is a good king. We have beaten the Syrians. But the Syrians are not satisfied with this. Verse 23, 
And they said, their gods, referring to our God that we understand, the gods of the hills were stronger than them, and they insult God. So the battle moves from simply Syria versus Israel to God versus Syria, to God versus Baal that's taking place inside here. So then they go to war again, and I mean, they have 100,000 out there on the fields, and they have this huge massacre take place, and they win again. But Ahab now, when he captures Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, his enemy, he says to him, but he's, he's my brother. He's a king, like I'm a king. We should let him go. And he lets the enemy go. And when he does this, there's a certain story that comes along that follows straight afterwards here where a man comes along with, and it's a funny story, but it's not exactly what's supposed to happen because we remember King Saul had the same kind of thing, right? He went to battle against the enemy. God said to him, you go do this battle, you will win. And he finds King Agag and then he says to himself, ah, but King Agag, I don't think we need to get rid of him. He's my brother, effectively. And this king does exactly the same thing. So then a funny story comes along, which is kind of weird, kind of interesting, because it's, it's just bizarre how this takes place. There is a prophet who comes along and talks to a fellow prophet and says to him, punch me in the face. Really, really just like, give me a black eye. And the prophet says, why should I do that? He said, because God told me that you need to punch me in the face. And the other prophet's like, oh, I don't know, man. No. No, I'm not going to punch you in the face. And the prophet says to him, well, because you're not going to punch me in the face and do what God commanded you to do, a lion's going to come and get you right now. And sure enough, a lion appears and kills him. And I'm like, oh, this is a little bit surreal. Unless you remember the stories in past that we've gone through in Kings here. Remember where the other prophet, he was deceived, went a different way, a lion killed him. Maybe something's going to come up later on about this whole lion that may feature inside here. But right now... They are trying to establish very clearly that when God speaks, you respond. There's no negotiation. If God commands you to do something, you do it. It's that kind of like life and death tension all the time. So the prophet goes and finds another prophet and says to him, punch me in the face. The prophet's like, well, the other one got eaten by a lion. <laughs> I'll deck you really hard. And so he decks him in the face, gives him the black eye. He puts the bandage over his head, and he goes and sees the king, Ahab. And I'm thinking to myself all the time, I'm pretty sure with makeup, you could have looked like you got injured, right? There's no reason to really get like punched in the face. But no, he's not satisfied with this. He wants to go ahead. And he goes and sees King Ahab. King Ahab says to him, what is the word from you? And he says, oh man, you know what you did? You let Ben-Hadad go? That is wrong. And you're going to die. And he basically uncovers his face at this point. And King Ahab sees who he is and recognizes that he's a prophet. And it says at the end of the text here that King Ahab was vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. He's depressed now. He's like, oh, this guy came in. I let him come into my place because King Ahab doesn't like to talk to prophets. Remember this. He doesn't really want to talk to prophets because prophets often have a negative message for Ahab. Maybe because Ahab's not doing what God said. So there's this tension all the time. So this guy tricked him into coming to see him, and he does this, and it's just terrible. And here's the tension that exists between faith and politics. King Ahab is following a political charter for his life. Let me keep this Benadad alive. Let me keep the alliances going. Faith, though, sometimes 
is politically incorrect, politically difficult, politically tr creating havoc in our lives. And I think sometimes we, we want Christianity to be this gentle, washed down, lovey-dovey, three men in a tub, rubber duck kind of thing going on, right? It's just like nothing else going on. It's just really just comfortable. But God is saying Christianity is really difficult and sometimes has to make you do things that are very hard for you to address. So that gives us the very first question that I have inside our worship guide here. It says this, how do we practically allow wheat and tares to coexist today? How do we practically allow wheat and tares to coexist today? Because there is a habit, right? in Christianity where you can look around the congregation, you can look around your friends and you can say, that's a wheat, that's a tear. Man, if I could just get rid of those tears, boy, we'd have a harvest, right? And then you don't want to admit that you may be the tear or you may be the wheat. You have this struggle that's going on all the time. And so God says, hey, you need to learn how to live together. And this is very difficult. We find it very hard when it's the wheat and tear exists in our families right? When you got like tension inside your family. You find it very hard when you got a wheat and tear existing inside your workplace or in your school or you got a bully who's just driving you insane at school or a teacher that just doesn't understand what you're doing or, or a student that doesn't understand what you're teaching them. There's a wheat and tear taking place all the time. And in our church, we have wheat and tear. And God is saying to us, hey, you need to find a way to exist together here. So now the king is all depressed. He's vexed and sullen, sitting down there at the end of uh, chapter 20. And 21 comes along, and there's introduced a new character called Naboth. Naboth just appears, and he has this vineyard. And as the king is looking over, depressed and sullen, he sees this vineyard and says, oh, I should go buy that place. So he goes to Naboth, and he says to him, I want to buy your vineyard, and I want to plant a vegetable garden. Who takes a winery and turns it into a vegetable garden? I don't know, you're probably thinking Adventists do. But this guy, he's going he's gonna to take this vineyard, he's going to turn it into a vegetable garden. But it's actually a reference to Exodus. It's a reference to the children of Israel who had vegetable gardens. It's kind of a little, little bit of a sting inside there. Let me take your vineyard that's generated all this income and I'll turn it into just a simple vegetable garden. But I want it and I'm willing to pay you handsomely for it. Because for Ahab... He looks at land entirely different to the way that Naboth does. Now, what you have to understand in the Bible is that when they had land, it was an inheritance. An inheritance meant that you kept it forever. Now, you could lease it for up to 50 years, but in the year of the Jubilee, you would have to return that land to the owner because it was your inheritance. It's for you forever. So Naboth says this, no, I've made, this is an inheritance from my fathers. I cannot sell this land. So he, Ahab, goes back to the palace and he's all depressed. It says in verse 5 of chapter 21, and he was sour in his spirit, so vexed that he couldn't even eat any food. And then he starts to whine. Oh, you notice that? He starts to whine now. He's, not, he's unhappy. You notice how the story is turning? You, you first, you thought Ahab was a nice guy, and then you thought he was a bad guy, and then eventually you watch him now, and it's like, he's a nice guy for a while, he went against the Syrians, and then he's like, he's a bad guy, he's not going well here, his life is going to be over. In fact, you know, the prophet has told him that, listen, your life, his life, gone, life for life, because you didn't deal with that king, your people are gone as well, everything is terrible in his life right here. So he begins to whine to his wife, oh, Jezebel, 
Could you imagine if you called your wife Jezebel, if you were married to a woman called Jezebel? That'd be a really weird context, wouldn't it? It'd be, it'd be, I mean, what would you say? Oh, Jezebel, would you be scared? <laughs> what would she say next? Well, clearly she says this. Oh, suck it up. She says, I give you the vineyard. I'll give you the vineyard. You're such a wimp. You're such a useless man. That's what she says in verse 7. She says, I will go get this vineyard for you. And verse 8 says this. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name. The other time that you remember, maybe you remember this, the other time where somebody wrote letters, and this is significant because when you write letters, it means you write with authority, was King David. King David wrote letters. He gave a letter to Uriah, deliver this to Joab. So when you write letters, there's something significant about to take place inside here. And he does, he writes his letter, she writes his letter in Ahab's name, and sends out and says, listen, what we're going to do is we're going to create a case we're going to create a court case. We're going to find some kind of weird rule, and then I'm going to find two false witnesses. Where else in the Bible do you remember two false witnesses appearing? Jesus' trial, Matthew 26, 60, 61. In that same, it says two false witnesses come. So two false witnesses come again, this time here. And it's interesting because I think that the prophets didn't understand this. When they wrote the gospel, there may have been many, many more witnesses. Who knows how many people came in and said all sorts of things against Jesus. But they mentioned two because they want to jog your memory back to this story here that you know in your heart happened with Naboth. And Naboth was oppressed and beaten up and destroyed and eventually taken out and stoned. And that's the correlation taking place in the text all the time inside here. So he comes along, two false witnesses say, yeah, Naboth hasn't been doing well. He's killed. And Jezebel goes to her husband. And she says these words in verse 15, arise, take possession. Arise is kum in Hebrew, take possession. It's a very important word because she uses not only kum for arise, but she also uses the word possession, which is the word that the Israelites understood when they were going to conquer the land, take possession of Cana, take possession of the promised land. And so she says, arise, kum, take possession of this land. And he is really excited, and so he takes possession of the land. Verse 17, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. I love how he's always got this, he's the Tishbite, Elijah the Tishbite, because he is now going to become larger than life itself. It's going to be amazing what happens is he says, arise, come, go down to meet Ahab. The same word that Jezebel uses to Ahab, arise, so does God use with Elijah. It says, she's arising, she's telling him, watch this, you arise and you go face him. And he runs down there, and he tells the message, he says, listen, Jezebel, Ahab, you guys are gonna die. God has had enough of this. Now here's the thing, there's a terrible death scene inside here, and we often graphically will show that picture more than anything else, Jezebel being eaten by the dogs, and da 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 da. And it's significant, it's significant in the sense that if you didn't have a body to bury, it was a big shame in that day, so having a body is very significant in those days for them in particular, but it's gone entirely. But there are tons of references inside the story back to Exodus because the children are stuck in exile and they're trying to understand why it all took place. And he gives them all the language back to Exodus. I mean, he talks about fasting and feeding and fasting and feeding all the way through inside here in preparation. You'll see it five or six times it takes place inside there. But he says, I gave you an inheritance. And Baal... He looks at land as just a commodity. 
All I'm going to do is buy and sell land as a commodity. I don't care about its value. But with God, it's an inheritance. It's supposed to last forever. So God sees the injustice of all these leaders. He sees that Naboth is defenseless and oppressed by somebody in authority. And he says, enough is enough. And how do we know this? Because Paul grabs this text, grabs the story, and gives reference to it. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 13, page 655, Romans chapter 13. And this is a difficult text when you read it like this, but when you read this text in the context of this story, it starts to make a little bit better sense here. And remember that Paul was a great scholar, great scholar. He understood the First Testament really, really well. So Romans chapter 13 says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And there, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And he continues down the story in this first chapter here of chapter 13, basically saying this, listen, God appoints leaders, and leaders are in place. But if these kings, these leaders do not follow God, God will remove these leaders. Paul understands this, kings understand this, the children in exile start to understand this, and they start to see that there is some tension taking place inside here. Which brings us to our second question that we have, multiple actually, in our recalibrate questions here. Who are the Ahabs and Jezebels? Who are the Naboths today? Are we as a community functioning like Elijah or Ahab? Do we, like Elijah, come forward as a community and speak about the injustice of whatever's taking place in our lives today? Or are we like Ahab, where we get to see Jezebel do horrific things in our society and just passively ignore it because it's too much to handle? And we're sullen, and we're vexed, and we're depressed. Are there people in our community, in our church, in our families, in our homes, in our work, in our schools, that are just like Naboth? That they are the minority, that they are the oppressed, that they are weak, that they are hurt, for whatever reason's going on, that we just ignore? Are there people around us, like Jezebel and Ahab, who are actively working against us in an evil way to be able to do this? And God is challenging us through these stories to say, hey, we need to be more like Elijah, which is a very difficult thing for us because we don't like to be too difficult and too direct. Well, Elijah declares the word. Ahab is really upset about this, obviously. Jezebel doesn't say anything about this. But he repents. In fact, verse 27 says five different ways that he repents. Repents with sackcloth and repents and fasted and all sorts of things. And Elijah the Tishbite says, because you repented, God will delay what's taking place in your life and you will not die in the same way. It will not happen to you. Chapter 22 takes place then, the final chapter of 1 Kings here. For three years now, Syria and Israel continued without war. So Ben-Hadad handled that, no war taking place. But in the third year, a king called Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came to the king of Israel. Jehoshaphat from Judah comes to Ahab and says to him, you know what, we should talk. We should dialogue, because there's no battle between the north and south anymore. And the king, Ahab, says to him, there is this land that belongs to us, that Syria took from us. We need to go to war. We need to go beat them up and take the land back. And believe me, land was everything. So land is everything back then. Land is kind of everything here in Boulder too, but land is everything back then for sure. And he says to them, we're going to go to war. And you think to yourself, good on you, Ahab. 
go to war. Go, go get, claim the land back for Israel. And Jehoshaphat says to him, I like that idea too. Let's go to war. But, but before we go to war, it says, verse 5, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Get some wisdom from God and find out what God says about this. So Ahab calls together 400 prophets, and he says to the 400 prophets, I need to know if we should go to battle. And the 400 prophets say, yes, God is with you. Go to battle. So Jehoshaphat says, well, 400's pretty good, but maybe there's another prophet. Are you sure there's nobody else in the whole land of Israel that we could get a second opinion? You ever got a second opinion when you're going to see a doctor? I remember once I went to see this doctor and uh, uh, I had my first bout of uh, treatment for cancer. And so he took out like my thyroid and stuff. And then a year later, the cancer came back. And so I went back to the doctor and the doctor said to me, oh yeah, I'm sorry, it's back. It's just terrible. And so he went to his library and he pulled out a book made in 1983 and he put it on my table and he opened it up and said, take this book home, read chapters four and five and tell me what you want us to do. And I was like, I'm, I'm not the doctor. Um, and I looked at the beginning, it's printed in 1983, and I thought, well, at least it's not 1883, you know, it's a little bit more up to date. And, and so I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I should get a second opinion. So, so I, I photocopied it just out of a good fun and uh, took it, and I went to uh, University of Michigan, uh, where they have a teaching school, medical teaching school, went and saw this doctor there, brilliant doctor. He looked at me, and I told him the story, and he looked at me and said, no, we're going to go to surgery, we're going to cut it out. I'm like, oh, good, somebody make a decision. <laughs> Tell me what needs to be done. So clearly, you know, this guy, Jehoshaphat, he wants to get a second opinion as well. I understand. He, sometimes you have to go get a second opinion, especially when the doctor tells you that they have no idea what they're doing. That's, that's always worrying, you know, because that guy that I was speaking to was a cancer specialist, maybe for rabbits. So, I <laughs> just, you know, just terrible. But uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's at Lakeland Hospital in Michigan. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, I shouldn't say that out loud. Oh, no, it's streamed. Uh, take that back. All right, so <laughs> he goes and gets a second opinion. And as he gets a second opinion, uh, Ahab says, there's one other prophet we could talk to. Oh, I just, I, he, the words he says, I hate him, though. And his name is Elijah the Tishbite, and I hate him, it says here. And Jehoshaphat says, well, let's go talk to the prophet that you hate. And so he goes and talks to the prophet that he hates him. But it, sorry, it wasn't right. It wasn't Elijah. It was uh, uh, Micaiah, this other prophet. He says, I hate this guy. Because this guy, Micaiah, always comes and he always has a negative story about me. And I just want to have a prophet that actually says nice things about me. What I want is a pastor in the church who will never confront me with anything wrong in my life and just like cuddle me all the time and just say everything's fine. That's what I want. I don't want anybody to be confrontational. What I want is just peace and comfort. I don't want anybody to challenge me. No, what I want is just say everything you do is fine. And that's what he wants. But Jehoshaphat says, no, go see him. Verse 11 says this in his introduction of a character. And Zedekiah, the son of Chinah, made for himself horns of iron and said, thus says the Lord, you shall go against Syrians. And we need to know this guy, Zedekiah, because the battle's about to take place. So they bring this guy along. And this guy comes along, and Ahab's looking at him, and he's mad because he knows that this prophet is a prophet of God, and this prophet will probably say, don't go to war. And he's like, I got 400 prophets saying go to war. So he looks at him and says, Micaiah, tell me, should I go to war or not? And the prophet looks at him and says, God has said, 
go to war. And Ahab's like, you're lying. (laughs) You're lying. (laughs) He can tell. He can tell. You're lying. That's not what God said. And then this prophet says, you're right. (laughs) God didn't say that. (laughs) Let me tell you what God really said. And he opens up a story that most commentaries ignore. Seriously, you read this next portion of the story in the Bible, everybody ignores it. Nobody really knows how to handle it because it's really kind of weird. It says this, verse 19 of chapter 22, and Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him, on the right hand and the left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that they may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another thing. They're having a debate in heaven. They're like, I don't know, what should we do? I think we should do this. I think we should do this. They're back and forth all the way through. Then the spirit came forward and said before the Lord, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means are you going to entice him? And he said, I will go down like a lying spirit. And I will tell all these 400 prophets to say, go to war. Because he will die in that war. And therefore the Lord said to him, go, tell those prophets, lie through them. And tell him to go to war so that he may indeed die because Ahab is abusing and killing and hurting all the oppressed of Israel. Now, here's the thing. We're very comfortable with Job. At the beginning of Job, we're very comfortable with the idea that God has general conference sessions. All right? Uh, He has these councils. And uh, you read the story where Satan turns up and God says to him, what are you doing here? So I'm having this meeting, discussing stuff. He said, well, I represent planet Earth. And I'd like to tell you that I now am in charge of planet Earth. And all this stuff takes place. We're comfortable with Isaiah, with the throne of God and people taking place, worshiping him and other people discussing this. This text, though, we look at it and say, oh, he had a vision. And suddenly like, it's it's a parable. It's not real. Let's take it back. It's really uncomfortable for us because this text here implies that God is willing to use whatever means to be able to get to the goal. And we're very uncomfortable with that. We love God who is black and white, except when it comes to our salvation. Then we love the God of grace and mercy. But we love a God who's black and white, who has everything concretely. We love a God who actually has nothing to discuss. But the character of God is far greater than this. I think there's a reason why God chose the cross. An image for us that's horrific, but because it makes sense to us. Because we want satisfaction. So God says, I am going to choose a cross. Because that's the model that you will understand. Well, you know what? This King Ahab, he needs to go to battle. In fact, the story says that not only does he go to battle, but he tries to trick the enemy, because he hears what the prophets say, he disguises himself as a foot soldier. He tells Jehoshaphat, you dress up like a king. <laughs> you go out there, kind of like wear the whites, you know, and you go out in the whites and stand on the Cuban wall there, and you stay out there as much as you can. And he says, you stay out there, and he goes and hides as a foot soldier. And yet, by accident, as the Bible says in Hebrew, through the innocence, a guy with a bow pulls the arrow, and the arrow flies and goes right through this guy, hits Ahab, and makes him bleed until he stays in chariot until he dies. He is going to die today. And God is saying, you need to go die on that battlefield. And I'm going to maneuver things around to allow you to be in this place. This is very complicated for us, okay? Because we're very uncomfortable with this. When it comes to death, 
we are constantly confused. We don't understand why babies die, why children die, why when you get older, health hits you in a way. You know, I, I read all the time the newsletters that come out from our head offices in D.C. and in Denver, and we hear about pastors that we've known for many years who have cancer and are dying, and you just, it's just tragedy everywhere. And you think, that life was snapped early. Death is deeply complicated, yet God understands so many things going on around us that sometimes death is the right thing that needs to take place. As hard as it is for us to understand, death is the right thing that needs to take place. And sometimes it feels like it's pain for us, but God knows what's going on inside here. I think that this story inside here is telling us this. I need you as human beings to understand that God will work through whatever means he can to get this point, to save his people. And it's complicated. Hence, he said to Samuel, when Samuel came to him and said, I can't go and anoint King David. <laughs> and he says to him, well, don't tell King Saul that you're going to anoint him. Just tell him something else. Tell him you're going to go shopping to Whole Foods. And, you know, and then when you're there, anoint him. Right? Just get the thing done. And God's saying to us all the time that I need you to understand that there is a goal with this. It's called the second coming. It's called restoring the world to where it should be. But we want everything to be clean cut all the way through. But we as human beings, we're messy people and we struggle with this. Zedekiah, of course, he's part of the 400. And he hears this, what Mikhail is saying. He's so upset, he slaps him in the face. Can you, see you can tell he's a real man. He just like taps him on the face, slaps him on the cheek, and, and he says, I can't believe you said this. And Micaiah says, yeah, it's true. God is using you to tell him to go to war. And I tell you what, why don't we let him go to war, and then we'll see who's right. When you want to know if the prophecy is true, you have to let the prophecy be fulfilled. When it is fulfilled, then you will know whether the prophet that said it is true. Until then, you have to rely on the word of God and have faith to do this. So he does this, and he says, all right. He goes out of battle, he dies, and it's all done. Verse 37 of chapter 22, so the king died. Which brings us to our third question inside our worship guide here. What is our prophetic word to our community? What is it that we need to say to each other? What is it that we need to hear? And who is it that we hate that we don't want to hear anything from? Right? Because it's very difficult when you've done things wrong Somebody's got to hold you accountable. Somebody's got to talk to you about this. And we get all upset because somebody told us something, blah, 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 blah. And God is saying, there has to be a prophetic hard word to be said to you. We get into chapter, uh, chapter 2 Kings here, chapter 1 now. And I know our time is pressing, so I'm going to ask for a little bit of, a, of a forgiveness here. We'll, we'll just go a little bit, we'll just squeeze ahead. I'm going to try and squeeze through it. Thank you. Uh, but here we go. I'm going to speed up a little bit more because I'm not speaking fast enough. 2 Kings, chapter 1 and chapter 2 here. We think of it as 2 Kings as another book. It's not. I want you to understand this, that when we get to 2 Kings here, this is actually the continuation of the story. In fact, Jehoshaphat remains as king of Judah, and it says here that he built an entire armada of ships because he wants to be like King Solomon. But his ships, it says in verse 47, it says his ships were wrecked. They could not do it. They could not get out there. So he fails entirely. Verse 51 tells us that there's a new king called Azahaziah, the son of Ahab. And Azahaziah turns up, and he's upstairs somewhere in his palace, and he falls through a lattice, and he basically breaks his back. He hurts himself so badly, 
I'm just guessing breaks his back in case somebody's saying, it doesn't say that in the Bible. Well, he's so hurt that he's lying down in bed. I call it break your back. So he's lying down in bed. He says, you know what? Let's go get help. I need to know from God if I'm going to get better. So he says, send for Beelzebub. Now, that sounds very similar to another reference to Satan in the New Testament, in the Second Testament. What's that reference? Beelzebub. And this one here is Beelzebub. And Baal basically means this. He basically means that he is master of life. He is the one. They worship Baal because he was the god of fertility, the one who grew things, the one who makes you healthy. That's who Baal is. Zebub, they say, possibly means flies. So this god is there and he flies as well. Hence, Golding uh, wrote the book, Lord of the Flies. And Lord of the Flies is the reference to Beelzebub. It's this one god of chaos. And you, you've read the book, maybe you've seen the movie, Lord of the Flies, where these kids are, end up on an island and they turn on each other because the Lord of the Flies creates chaos in their life. And this God, clearly, doesn't exist. He creates chaos in his life. So it says in verse 3 of chapter 1, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to this land here. And this is where he lays down to him, you need to go tell this king here that he is going to die. And the king's really upset about this. So what happens in the story here is that the king says, this is ridiculous. I don't like the fact I'm going to die. He says, send 50 men to kill Elijah. So they appear like, hey, uh, Elijah, come down. I want to take you back to the palace and have a conversation. But he knows they're here to kill him. So Elijah says, God, could you handle this for me? And he says, fire down, kills all 50. King hears about this. He's kind of upset. He says, send another 50, because that's what you do if you're the British Army. You just send another 50, and you send another 50 out there. And, and another 50 come out, and Elijah's like, hey, they're going to come and kill me. And God says, ah, fire, consumes all 50. Third time lucky, 50 come along, and the captain says, ah, I know what you've done before. Um, let me live. Just, just let me live. Listen. My king really needs to speak to you. I promise you, all 50 of us are not going to touch you. We just need you to come with us. At that point, he hears from the God and says, God says, go, tell him. So he goes down. You'll be safe. He goes down there. He confronts him. And as he does this, he says the same thing to him. You're going to die. And he did. He died at that point there. Then we get to chapter 2. And this is the story. This is a story that everybody talks about with children. This is a story where we're all excited about it because of just that one, two verses that takes place in chapter 2. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven, a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha went on their way from Gilgal. The whole story takes place in that one verse right there. You know that Elijah's going to go to heaven. And then the story says it's not actually about Elijah going to heaven. As fantastic as that is, as inspiring as it is when you read in Paul, where he talks about, where you read Paul's writings in Corinthians, where he says, in a twinkling of an eye, you can see it all taking place. Hope is reality. I want you to understand that this is not what the story is actually driving for. Paul is not saying, hey, I want you to get this. God is saying there's something deeper inside the story. And Elisha, he says to Elijah, hey, I know you're going to heaven. And all his friends come and say, did you know? Elijah's going to heaven, and he keeps on saying, yeah, I know it, be quiet. I'm not happy about this. Twice he says, I know it, be quiet, leave me alone. And eventually, he reaches the Jordan River, they cross the river into the wilderness, they go into the wilderness, they have the conversation, and the chariots come down, and we often depict Elijah jumping into the chariot and flying off, but the Bible doesn't say that. It just says that the chariots were all around, but the Elijah was taken up to heaven. 
And as he's taken up to heaven, Elisha just says, my father, my father, because he looks at him. He says, this is the one. This is the one who was leading us, leading all of our people. And he comes back and he tells all his people. He actually comes back to the river of Jordan. He throws down the mantle. And in my Bible, it says that he throws in the mantle and the river parts ways and he walks through. If you're reading the Vulgate version of the Bible, it says that he threw it down. It didn't work. He had to do it twice. My Bible, my translation understands it a little bit cleaner. So he throws down the water. A miracle takes place. He crosses the river Jordan. The people say to him, where is Elijah? He says, he was taken to heaven. And they said, I don't know. So they 50 guys get together. They spend three days, which is the sign of completion. They look all over the, the desert, and they admit that he isn't there. And Elisha can't resist it. He says, uh, I told you, didn't I? <laughs> That's what he says in verse 18. You should have wasted all this time. And then he starts to do miracle after miracle. He goes and he puts salt in the water. And in that moment, as he puts salt in water, things just turn around, and the water's turned around. And that reference is what Jesus says later on. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Because he's trying to draw your memories of these stories where he understands that you are people who are going to change everything and make miracles take place. And then we get to this really awkward story at the end of the entire chapter. And the awkward story inside here focuses on the bears that come out and call Elisha a bold-headed guy and tell him to go up. You saw Elijah, why don't you go up? And your Bible probably says small boys, right? Or children in some translations. But the Hebrew is Nahar. Nahar means young men. Probably like Isaac, when he was called Nahar, young men, he was 28 years old. These are young men who know better. And they come out, and where do they come from? They come from, from the city of uh, Bethel, which is where Jeroboam, at this time, Jeroboam, from the very beginning, he had made it an altar of sacrifices against God, the golden calf. They're coming from an evil place, and they see Elisha coming, and Elisha has a heavy word to say, stop what you're doing. So they go and confront him, and then these she-bears come out, and we often interpret the Bible as saying that the bears killed all of them, but the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that it tore those 42 young men, those ones who were taunting. And the bold-headed reference, just so you know this, because some of us lack hair, uh, is, it's, and, and that's why you shouldn't make any jokes, uh, is a reference to leprosy. That's what it's talking about. Because leprosy was a sign where you lost all your hair, and so it was like a disease, and so it was a curse on top of that. And he says, look, I'll remove everything away, and the bears come out and they deal with this. But the story is not about the bears. The story is not about Elijah going up to heaven. The story is about Elisha. And Elisha, who, when Elijah has gone, Meanwhile, continues to influence the next generation. Meanwhile, continues to do his ministry. Meanwhile, will do his miracles. Even though he knows the promise that Elijah will return someday. And Malachi tells us this. And, John, and Jesus refers to John the Baptist as Elijah. All these beautiful things will take place. Meanwhile, he's doing this. And the story for us today is this. That Jesus came to this earth and he's gone. But meanwhile, we will continue doing ministry. Meanwhile. We will continue asking for the Spirit to bless us. Meanwhile, we will stay faithful to God, influencing another generation and another generation until Jesus returns. And that's the message that God wants us to remember when it comes to Elisha. May Jesus bless you with gentleness and a heart that's tender. May Jesus bless you with strength against all principalities. May Jesus bless you with compassion and care. May Jesus bless you with courage, daring to be who you are. May Jesus bless you with openness, understanding, and respect. May Jesus bless you with the power to make Jesus all.